All right. Well, again, as I said, the argument that we're making today is that the imprecatory prayers of the Bible are not contrary or foreign to the will of God for the Christian today. That to be a faithful Christian and to live faithfully before God, we must understand these prayers and how it is that they are to be practiced in the Christian life. We as Christians must pray to God for him to vindicate his church. We must pray for God to execute his justice upon the ungodly. And this is taught all over the Bible, right? From cover to cover, this idea of God uh, granting relief and vindicating his church and also executing the ungodly is taught from cover to cover in the Bible. Yet, in our own day, it seems very foreign and strange to say such things, right? To say that it is righteous or to say that it is consistent with the will of God, to say that God desires and is glorified by executing justice upon the ungodly seems to be very peculiar and inconsistent with what we know and what we've been taught about God. Now, the question is, is why is this the case, right? If these are all over the Bible, and they are, then why is it that this seems so foreign and strange to us? And I believe the reason is, is because popular Christianity, what has been popularly taught within the church and promoted for many years, is the idea that God's greatest attribute is love. That the attribute of love has been brought to the forefront, and it has been done at the expense of the other attributes of God. Now, is it true that God is a God of love? Yes, of course it is. The Bible does teach that God is love. But is God only a God of love? Of course not. The Bible teaches that there are many things that are true about God, many things that are true about his character and nature, and that, yes, God is a God of love, but he is also a God of righteousness, and he is a God of justice, right? That these things are also true about God, and the love of God is not emphasized in the Bible above these other things, but is placed there in common with the other attributes of God. So the attribute of love has been emphasized to the expense of the other attributes of God. And then in addition to this, the understanding that people have of the love of God has been corrupted. Right? So there's two faults. One, love of the love of God has been promoted at the expense of other attributes. And then even when that love of God is promoted, the love that is promoted is not consistent with what the Bible teaches about the love of God. For many, the love of God means that God wants and desires and will do whatever it takes to save the most people possible. God wants every man, woman, boy, and girl from the beginning of time to the end of time to be saved. And the only thing that hinders God from accomplishing such things is the free will of man. Man's will will not allow God to accomplish what he really wants to do. God wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He wants to love everyone. He wants to have a relationship with everyone. He wants everyone to go to heaven. But in the end, some will not. And this is not because this is consistent with the will of God. It's not because this is something that God desires or purposed, but is really just a necessary evil. It's a consequence of the way in which God created the world. God's hands on the day of judgment are tied, for he is bound to the system that he has set in place. Because some refuse the wooing of God, the sweet calls of God, right? God is like a gentleman who lovingly and kindly calls people to himself, 
but they refuse to come to him. Right? God invites them. He pleads with them. He even begs with them. He's in anguish because they won't listen to him. He wants them to believe in Christ, but then they choose not to. So in the end, God is forced against what he really wants to do, which is save them. And in the end, he's forced to judge them, to give them justice, and to send them to hell for all eternity. But he's in anguish in doing so. He doesn't really want this to happen. And it doesn't bring him as much glory as saving people. It's not something that we ought to celebrate. And it's certainly not something that we ought to pray for. Right? So these people would say we should pray only for the salvation of sinners. But we should never pray for their, their destruction. Right? And even some take this love of God to such conclusions that they teach and believe that in the end... Everyone will be saved. Everyone will go to heaven. Every sinner will be in heaven one day. Even Hitler and Stalin, and some will even say, even Satan and the demons will go to heaven one day because the love of God will triumph over everything. Because of this, this is why many of these prayers in the Bible, where the righteous are asking for God to execute justice on the wicked, they seem bizarre, foreign, and peculiar to us. And truth be told, many people would say they're actually evil. It's actually evil for us to think or to pray in these ways. Right? They may not say it, but the way that they react to these things shows you that this is what they really believe. For example, if we look at Psalm 58, I know I said earlier that we would be in the New Testament, and the first passage we'll read is from the Old Testament. But here is just an example of one of these types of prayers. And I want you to think, what would happen in your church if the pastor got up and prayed this prayer on Sunday morning? How would people respond to him? How would they look at him if this was the case? Psalm 58, verse 1 says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Here, when he says gods, he's talking about rulers. Rulers of the earth. Those who God has placed in position of rulership in the earth. He's saying that they're not doing what's right. They're not decreeing and executing justice on the land. They're not judging men uprightly, but they're promoting violence and evil in the land. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. So far, he's describing what they're like. This is what these rulers are like. Now, verses 6 through 11 is what he wants God to do. His, his prayer to God, his supplication to God on what he wants God to do to these rulers because of what they're doing. Verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that devolves, dissolves into slime, like a stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Again, if we pray this publicly, 
If I got up and prayed this publicly, people would look at you like you're Charles Manson or Hitler or something like that, as if you're some bizarre person. And yet, here we see that this is right here in the Bible. So the question then is, how are we to understand passages like this? Why is it and how is it that we ought to uh, inform our minds and our theology so that we have a proper understanding and we can incorporate these things into our understanding of God and into what he's doing in this world? So point number one, the salvation of the elect and the condemnation of the wicked are both consistent with the character and nature of God. Both are part of God's purpose for this world and both bring glory to God. Right, Both the salvation of the righteous and the condemnation of the wicked, both of these are consistent with what we know about God. Both are a part of his purpose and plan for this present world. And in the end, both will bring glory to God on the day of judgment. Let's prove this from Scripture. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. In verses 5 and 8, here we have God telling Moses what he is like, revealing to him his character and his nature. So to see that this is consistent with the character and nature of God. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood uh, the, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There we see that God reveals to Moses that he is both a compassionate, gracious, patient, loving God who is faithful, but who is he like this towards? He's not like that toward the guilty. Toward those who are guilty sinners, he says that he will by no means clear them. Right? He's not loving toward them. He's not gracious and merciful and kind toward them. But instead, he will hold them accountable for their sins on the day of judgment. So yes, God is loving toward the righteous, but toward the wicked, God is wrathful. He will not clear them. He will punish them and repay them according to what they have done. Also in Psalm 18, Psalm 18, verse 25 through 30. Psalm 18, verse 25. There, David says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. There he says, yes, God is merciful, but only to those who are merciful. Right? And that God is blameless, but only to the blameless. And God is pure to those who are pure. But to those who are crooked, those who are evil, right? those who practice wickedness, he makes himself torturous to them. God is against them. He's against them. And he sets himself actively against them. He saves the humble man, but the one who is haughty, he brings down to nothing. This is 
what is consistent with the character and nature of God. God's power is used for the good of the righteous, and that same power is used against the ungodly because of their sin, because they do not repent. So this is consistent then with the character of God. Secondly, it's also consistent with the purpose of God that is found in the scriptures. If we look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 10. There it says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here the prophet Isaiah is saying that the word of God will not return void to God. That God sends out his word into the world, and when he does so, it accomplishes exactly what God wants it to accomplish. He has a purpose, and it accomplishes its purpose. It never goes out in vain. So what then is the purpose of the word of God going out into the world? Is it just to save people? Is it just to give life to people? Just to give salvation to people? Well, we know that that's not the case. Because we know that not everyone who hears the word of God believes the word of God. Not everyone who hears the gospel believes the gospel. So then, how does it not return to God empty? It doesn't return empty because there's a twofold purpose in the preaching of the gospel. It gives life to those who have been chosen by God, to the elect. God uses the word of, of God through the spirit of God to give life to those whom God has chosen. But those whom God has not chosen, who are in their sin, that same word of God, when they hear that word of God, it hardens their heart and it prepares them for the day of judgment. And in both ways, God's word accomplishes exactly what it was meant to accomplish. And we have examples in the Bible of this. Examples in the Bible of both of these happening. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, there the word that he preaches is used by God to give salvation to thousands of people. But a few chapters later, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, preaches an equally faithful sermon. He preaches a faithful word of God, and what happens there? They go and they stone him to death. They kill him. They execute him because of that. Did God's word fail? Of course not. It accomplished exactly what God intended for it to do. This is what the Lord even tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, when God calls Isaiah and commissions him to be a prophet, to be a messenger who will go out and preach oracles to the people of God, to the Israelites, he even tells Isaiah that his ministry is primarily going to be a ministry that prepares the people for judgment, for the judgment that will come, that increases their sin so that God can judge them. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And then he said, go and say to this people. So here is the call of Isaiah. God says, who will go and speak for us? Who will go and deliver the message of God to the people? And Isaiah says, I will go. I will be the one who goes. And we all say, oh, yes, this is great. This is what we want, right? But what does he tell him to do? What does God commission Isaiah to do? Verse 9, and he said, 
Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here, his ministry is to go to the people and say, hear the word of God, but don't understand it, right? See, see the word of God, but don't perceive what it means spiritually. I'm going to give you audibly the word of God, but you're not going to understand it spiritually. You're not going to understand it in your heart. You're not going to turn and believe because God wants to destroy them. God wants to judge them because of their sin. And he tells him, keep saying these things until their sins are heaped as high as the heavens, and then I'm going to come and lay this place to utter waste. And even if a tenth of it remains, I'm going to come and get some more of it. I'm going to tear down the tree, and then I'm going to burn up the stump. This is what God tells to Isaiah. And this is not something that's just in the Old Testament. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul recognizes that there is this twofold aspect of his ministry, that he is both a minister of life and a minister of death, that both of these are a part of what he is doing. Right? To some, God grants life through the preaching of the gospel. To others, he gives death to them and prepares them for the day of judgment. And Paul understands and knows this. Right? And he's not uh, chafing against God or resisting the will of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He knows that the preaching of the gospel, his ministry, will not produce life in everyone. That there will be some that it produces death in, and there will be some that it produces life in. So one, it's a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life, right? And he doesn't alter his message in order to receive a favorable response, right? He doesn't say, well, we don't like it that so many people reject it. So let's change our message and our methods so that we can get more people to respond positively to us. This is what's happening in our own day. This is what's happening in the modern church growth movement. They take away anything harsh and negative so that people respond favorably. This is why they only talk about the love of God. Because who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to hear that God loves you just the way that you are and that you don't have to repent? Of course people love that message. But they don't love it whenever you tell them that they're sinners. And that if they don't repent of their sin, God's going to judge them. Then that produces death in them and they rage against it and they come against you. But Paul was not a peddler. He wasn't one who changed the word of God in order to get a more favorable response because he knew part of the purpose of God was that the, the word that he preached would produce life in some and it would produce death in others and that this was consistent with the will of God and that this would also bring glory to God. One last passage we'll look at 
Actually, we'll, we'll hold off on that one because I know that Isha's going to deal with it uh, later, but that's Matthew chapter 23. Jesus even teaches this as well. Jesus teaches this as well, that he even sends prophets, wise men, and scribes in order to produce sin in people so that God can judge them. And we'll deal with that in due time. So, both salvation and condemnation are consistent with the character and nature of God. They are also both consistent with the purposes of God, but they are also consistent with the glory of God. Right? On the day of judgment, right, the righteous and the holy angels, they do not wring their hands and writhe their hands in agony and pain when God is punishing and executing justice upon the ungodly. But rather, when God does this, they glorify God. They praise God. We'll read one passage here, but we'll look at more of these in one of the later sessions. This is Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. It says, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here, when God executes the ungodly, the response by the angels and by the altar is praise to God. A declaration that, God, you are just and true and that this is good. It is good and right that you have done this. They shed the blood of your saints. Now you have shed their blood. You give them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. They deserve these things. So then, we know that justice, justice is a good thing. Right? The destruction of the ungodly is not an accident. It's not an unintended consequence. It is consistent with the character, purpose, and glory of God. So then, if this is true, if the destruction of the ungodly is consistent with the character of God, with the will of God, with the glory of God, why would we be surprised that the Bible would instruct us to pray to this end, to pray for these things to come about? Right? When a child of God, who has his mind set on the things of God, who has his mind transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and has come to rightly understand the justice and righteousness of God, a God who he worships, a God who he loves and glorifies, right? a God that he knows is just and righteous, and then daily he goes out and sees a world filled with every kind of evil imaginable. Daily he sees the wicked man flagrantly sinning against his creator, his ruler, and the judge of all the earth, who for the righteous man also happens to be his father, his savior, his brother, and his master. Daily we see the wicked living shameful lives. See men use the good gifts of God. Right? God has given them life, breath, and all things. Acts chapter 17. He's given them these things, and yet they use the good gifts given to them by God to commit sins against God, to blatantly defy the law of God, to spit in God's very face. They use these things to commit acts of treason and defiance against God. They rail against God. They rage against God and against his Christ, blaspheming him, breaking his laws daily, raising their fists in bold defiance of God. How can we not be moved to pray and to ask for God to do something about this? For God to come and to, to make these things right. How is it that we can be unmoved by such things, that these types of things do not upset us? 
for our spirits not to be provoked when God's name is sullied. Acts chapter 17, there the apostle Paul, when he went to Athens and he saw the people committing idolatry, it says that his spirit was provoked. He was angry when he saw the idolatry of the town and it led him to say something about it and to tell the people that they needed to repent of such foolish idolatry. How can we not be provoked? How can we not want God to right the wrongs? How can we not greatly desire for God to judge the world in righteousness? Right? If they will not repent, for God to repay them according to what they have done. Right? The righteous cannot bear to see God's name so treated. Right? We ought to long and cry out for God to execute justice in this world. And this is consistent with the will of God and with the conduct of the righteous found in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 119, verse 53, there David says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Hot indignation, burning anger seizes me because of the wicked, because they break your law. It upset him when he saw this. It made him angry. And here it's not a sin, right? It's something that he's being commended for because of his righteousness. When he sees sin taking place in the land, when he sees the wicked breaking the law of God, it causes him to respond with a hot indignation. Also, Psalm 119, 158 He says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. They're repulsive to me. They're disgusting to me. When I see them, they're faithless. They don't keep the law of God. And it upsets him when he sees this, right? That we respond to sin with indifference, with laughter, right? This is not a virtue, right? This is not something by which we ought to be commended, To tolerate sin without being provoked in spirit is not evidence of righteousness. It shows that we care nothing for the honor and glory of God. The problem that we have is we take sin far too lightly. We don't take it nearly as seriously as the Bible does. We know that God will judge this world in righteousness. The, The final event before we enter into eternity is a day of judgment, is the judgment of this world. Christ will judge the world in righteousness. This present age, this present world, comes to an end with a day of judgment. Acts 17, verse 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? The resurrection of Christ is not just for the salvation of people. It's also to fix a day of judgment. It's to give proof that God will judge the world. Those who have by God's spirit repented of sin and trusted in Christ, they will have eternal life. But those who persist in their sin and wickedness, they will be repaid according to what they have done. The salvation of the children of God and the condemnation of the children of the devil. This is how the world comes to an end. He separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep enter into eternal life, the goats to eternal condemnation. Right? If this is the end of the world, the just end of the world, if this is what happens to the ungodly on the day of judgment, then why would we find it strange for God to, to, to call us to pray for these things, to call for us to pray that God would bring these things about? So we ought to pray for justice when we see God sinned against. But we also ought to pray for justice when the church of God is tormented by the wicked, right? When the righteous, 
when the righteous man is unjustly persecuted, then we ought to pray for God to vindicate him at the expense of his tormentors. This is what will happen in this present world. Again, this is another problem we have. We don't face persecution because we're not living godly lives. We're not preaching the gospel the way that we ought to. We're not calling people to turn from sin and being light against that darkness. When the light shines into the darkness, the darkness responds with revulsion. They hate it. They respond with vitriol and they want to extinguish the light. They cannot tolerate the light. Right? This is the judgment of John chapter 3. The light comes into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they want to extinguish the light. This is what they will do. This is what happens in the Bible. Even uh, Jeremiah the prophet says that he asked God to repay his enemies because he, he taught them the word of God. He did good to them. He spoke to them of God's truth and they repaid him by treating him with evil. They repaid him by persecuting him, by ridiculing him and reviling him. We as Christians, we ought to suffer. Not because we're criminals, not because we're murderers and thieves, not because we're lawbreakers, but because of righteousness, because we're living consistent with the will of God. And when we suffer because of righteousness and we're treated as criminals because we're doing that which is good, this is the way we are to respond. We are to cry out to God and pray to God for him to grant us relief and for him to repay our enemies according to what they have done. This is the only thing we can do. Right? If we cannot get justice in this world, then we have to appeal to a higher court. We have to appeal to the very heavens itself, to the highest court in all of the universe, and ask God to be the one who vindicates us, to ask God to give us justice. Uh, Abraham says in Genesis 18.25, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? There needs to be an understanding that God is a righteous judge and he will do what is right. Amen. Psalm 98 verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. Here again, the Bible is teaching that to recognize and desire justice is not evil. This is a good thing, right? And even among people, even among unbelievers, there is a recognition, right? Even among ungodly people who don't know the word of God, who don't submit to God, even they recognize that there needs to be justice in the land, that there needs to be justice in the courtroom, right? There's an understanding and desire, even among the common man, even the unbelievers, for justice, right? If someone is guilty of committing a crime, if someone murders someone, and they, everyone knows that they did this, everyone realizes and believes and wants that person to be punished, that it's not right for a murderer to be set free on the streets to roam free again. That he ought to be punished for the crime that he has committed. People recognize this. And also, if someone is innocent, if they've not committed a crime, that it is wrong for them to be held guilty, to be held responsible, to be punished. That those who are innocent ought to go free, and those who are guilty ought to be punished. And when this happens... When there's injustice in the land, 
right? Even in, a, in, in any society, right? What society? In any sane society, a society with any measure of civility and decency, there is an outcry among the people that this is not right. Even unbelievers recognize this on, in, in the civil courts, in the interactions that take place between man and man, that there needs to be justice in the land. And this among unbelievers, who are by nature dead in their trespasses and sins, who are corrupt, sinful people. If they recognize this, then how much more should we, the righteous, right, those who have the mind of Christ, those who have informed our mind with the justice and righteousness of God, we ought to even more desire for justice to be meted out, right? When crimes are committed, that there be justice. And what is the greatest crime committed in this world? It is to sin against God. It is not when we sin against man, but it is when we sin against God. When people sin against God, this is the greatest evil that happens in this world, and yet it happens day after day after day, and yet the wicked go unpunished day after day after day. For us to desire God to defend his honor and for God to right the wrongs is not something that is evil. When crimes are committed against God and when crimes are committed against his people, we ought to pray for God to execute justice in these things. So, if we understand the character and nature of God, if we rightly understand the end of this world, right, and if we are reading our Bibles, right, we have to read our Bibles from cover to cover, and we see the many prayers for God to execute the ungodly, we will come to understand that this is not contrary to the will of God. It is not a sin to pray in such ways. So now the question is, is it permissible to pray in this way or is it expected? Right? Is it something that we can do if we want or is it something that God commands us to do? And our contention is that we must pray this way. And if we fail to pray this way, we're actually sinning against God. To live a godly life we have to order our steps according to the will of God. And if this is what is taught in the Bible, right? If we have the commands of God to do this, and we also have the example of the, of the godly throughout the ages praying in this way, then why do we not pray this way? And for us to fail to do so is actually to commit a sin against God because we're not incorporating the word of God into our righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says such about the word of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. It says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice he says there all scripture. All scripture. He doesn't say some scripture. He says all scripture. So we do not get to pick and choose which scriptures are breathed out by God and which scriptures that we think are profitable and useful. We don't get to come to the Bible right, as an editor, as one who is standing over it, and we read through it, and we highlight those passages that are favorable to us, the passages that we really like, and then the ones that we don't like, we ignore, we skip over, or we just flat out reject. We cannot do this. If the Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God 
and that all scripture is profitable, then we must accept whatever the Bible says. We must come to rightly understand what the scriptures teach. Every page of the Bible has been given to us by God. It has authority. It has been inspired by God. It is infallible. It is clear. We can understand what the Bible teaches. It has been given to us by God for our benefit so that we are equipped for every good work. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in the Bible. That means we cannot neglect or reject any part of the sacred writings. We need everything. Nothing can be ignored, neglected, or cast to the side. We know there is no doubt when Paul says all scripture, he's not just talking about the New Testament. We know that that's the case because Paul repeatedly in his epistles quotes from where? He quotes from the Old Testament. We know that he's not just talking about the New Testament. He is talking about cover to cover, Genesis all the way to Revelation. All scripture is breathed out by God. Everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament must be understood in its proper context and incorporated into our faith and righteousness. Right, read the book of Psalms then. Read it. Right, which the Apostle Paul tells us to do. He commands us in the New Testament to read the Psalms. So there, you can't get past the Psalms. You have to read the Psalms because we have an Apostle uh, to the Gentiles telling them that they, they need to read the Psalms. In Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in Psalms. So the book of Psalms, at least we know in the Old Testament, we are commanded as a New Testament church to read. So read the Psalms. Read all of them, right? Should we just read some of them? Just the ones that we like? Just the ones that are favorable to us? Or should we read all of them? We ought to read Psalm 23. Everyone loves that one. But what about Psalm 58 that we read earlier, where God says that the righteous will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked? Should we read that one? Should we pray in that way? Should we sing it? Should we sing about bathing our feet in the blood of the wicked? Well, they did. The Psalms were given to them to sing in their public worship. The early church sang these things. So why don't we? Why don't we sing in those ways? Not some of them, not the ones we like, not the ones that agree with our standard of what is acceptable. We should read all of them, all of them. And if you read the book of Psalms, you will find many, many, many more prayers asking God to execute the ungodly than you will find prayers asking God to save them. Did you know that? that there are probably a hundred to one prayers prayed in the Bible asking for God to execute the ungodly than asking for God to save them or to be compassionate to them. Yet, again, in the modern church, where are people praying in this way? This type of prayer is almost universally absent and rejected. This is not an option for us. If we take the word of God seriously, we cannot just skip, we cannot overlook these passages. We have to understand what they mean and how they are to be incorporated into our faith and our righteousness. It is not an option to neglect them or reject them. Right? This is what people do. Right? Some people, they read it and they come across it and they just don't know what to do with it. It seems bizarre. It seems peculiar to them. They've not been taught properly. So they come to it and they just go, they throw their hands up and say, I don't know what to do. And then they just move on and they don't incorporate it into their understanding and thinking about God. Other people come to them and they find them repulsive 
and they actually reject them and will demean them. Some people will even say that when David prays in such ways, he's sinning against God, that he shouldn't do that. Or they'll come up with crafty, subtle arguments by which they can neglect these things. Well, that was in the Old Testament. Right? That was for that dispensation, and now we live in a different dispensation, so it's not for us. Right? God acted one way then, but now he's, we're in the time of grace. Right? Back then he did that, but now he doesn't, so we don't have to do that. This is what people do. They use crafty, subtle arguments so that they can reject and neglect massive portions of the Bible. No one wants to just come out and say, I reject this. I don't believe this. I don't think this is inspired by God. So this way, they can hold out that they believe in the Bible, that they believe in the infallibility and the authority and inspiration of the Bible, but they have a crafty way of undermining it so that they can cast it aside, right? They're, they're very tricky people. You've got to watch them. This is what they do. We cannot do this. We must understand these things. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. If it's not coming from faith, it is a sin against God. Whatever we do that doesn't proceed from faith is a sin and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ that our faith is not just some random faith some generic faith it is a faith that is built upon the word of God so if these prayers are in the word of God then they must be a part of our faith and if they're not a part of our faith then our faith is deficient and we're actually sinning against God we're breaking his commandments and but again Who is doing this? Who is doing this? People wrangle over words. They use their crafty, subtle arguments to reject what they don't like in the Bible. What they're doing is what the Catholics do. They stand over the Bible, and they're the ones that give it authority. They pick and choose what they like, and they say that this is better than that. We cannot do these things. But people will say, we're just going to pray for our enemies. Right? We're not going to pray against them. We're going to instead shower them with love and kindness. We're going to be gentle and loving. Right? Because this seems very harsh. It seems very unloving, unkind. It doesn't seem gentle. It, it actually it seems very mean-spirited and cruel. And we want to be positive. Right? We don't want to be negative. No one likes negative people. Right? If we're negative and we pray like this, uh, then people won't like us and they won't come to our church. So we're just going to love them. We're just going to pray for them. We're just going to bless them. But we're not going to pray against them. And we're not going to curse them. And we're not going to, as it says in Psalm 139, where David says, do I not hate those who hate you? Yes, he says, Lord, I hate them with complete hatred. We're not going to hate the ungodly. We're just going to love them. And again, we're not saying that we shouldn't pray for the ungodly. We're saying that we should do both. We should both pray for them and pray against them if they will not repent. But people say, no, we're just going to do the positive. We're not going to do the negative. And they say it, it's all under the guise of love. However, this so-called love is not a love that's proceeding from faith because it's rejecting what the Bible teaches. So it is a love built upon unbelief and actually is a love built upon arrogance. Because what we are actually saying is that we have a better way than what's found in the Bible. We have a better way than God. We are actually more loving than God and more loving than the prophets and more loving than Jesus and more loving than the holy apostles. When we fail to practice what is in the Bible, 
under some misguided guise of love, we're actually acting in an arrogant way towards God. Because we're saying to God that we know better than He does. We have a better, higher, more noble way. More loving than God. Man, wow, what a, what, that's something else, isn't it? It is a rejection of what is clearly taught in the Bible under a false notion of love. We can't just come out and say that we don't like this. We can't just come out and say that we reject this. We can't just come out and say that we find these prayers repulsive to us. So we justify our unbelief and our failure to practice what's in the Bible by saying that we're doing it out of love because we want to be so loving. But this in and of itself is a flagrant sin against God and is a violation of the first and greatest commandment. The, The greatest commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself. There's one that comes before that, and that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do we show our love for God? But by humbly submitting to his word. This is the one that God esteems. He who is humble and contrite and lowly in spirit and who trembles at my word. We are to love God. We are to tremble at his word. And that means that we are to do whatever it says. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Loving our enemy cannot contradict loving our God. They must always go together. The Bible teaches us to pray both for and against our enemies. The Bible teaches us to do both. We have many examples of prayers like this in the Bible. We have many examples of the righteous through many ages praying for God to vindicate them and to execute justice upon their enemies. They are in the Bible. These prayers are. It is undeniable. So then we have to ask ourselves, what do they mean and how do they equip us for every good work? How do we practice these passages? We must live godly, righteous lives. And what it means to live a godly, righteous life cannot be defined by our own standard of righteousness, nor can it be defined by what people like or what people want. But it must be defined by God. Only God can instruct us in the right way, the upright way, the blameless way, so that we can live pleasing lives to God in this present evil age. And he has given us his word, and these are in the Bible, so we have to understand them. And that is what our hope is today, is to help you and to help ourselves and to help whoever will listen to understand what the Bible says. And we, again, implore you to be humble but also to take what we say and to go and read the scriptures. Read the Bible from cover to cover and see whether or not what we are saying is consistent with what is in the Bible. Don't take our word for it. And also don't reject it because it comes from us. Examine the scriptures. Search the scriptures and see if this is what it indeed says. And if so, then believe it. Believe it and do what it says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, that we would incorporate every word of yours. Lord, every word that you have given, we know that it will prove to be true. Lord, we know that your word is, is, is more to be desired than gold and it is sweeter than honey. Lord, it equips us for every good work. Lord, it makes wise those who are simple. Lord, it gives us wisdom and understanding. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, we want to live a righteous life in this present age. Lord, we want to pray those things that are consistent with your will. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, how to do so. Lord, how to incorporate these prayers into our righteousness, into our faith. 
Lord, that we might be more faithful to you. Lord, give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, that we might not err to one side or the other. But, Lord, that we would walk on the straight paths of the Lord. So, Lord, we need your help. Lord, we are foolish on our own. Lord, we don't know our right from our left. Lord, only you can teach us. And so we pray that you do so through your spirit today and through your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.